Superheroes, apocalyptic destruction, deals with dark lords, urban sorcery, high fantasy, or perhaps all of the above. This panel of industry experts will discuss how they build engaging settings that are epic in scope and that foster larger-than-life gameplay. This panel was recorded at the RinCon Gaming Convention in 2017 here in Tucson. So uh, this is the epic world building panel, um, and I want to do I want to do um, I want to do this like split in half. We do half the time devoted to um, to epic world building as a designer, and then half the time to epic world building as a GM. Because you can you can have all the source books in the world, but if your players don't like, you can go. Oh, I'll just look it up in that book over there. It doesn't really like feel very epic. So um, we're going to talk about bringing it to the players at the second half. Uh, first, um, uh, my name's Brian. I have no right to be here whatsoever, but we're going to go down the line. Everyone's going to introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about like what you've done in design as far as like world building, um, and um, yeah, well, give us your give us your credentials and why we should listen to anything that you say at all. <laughs> all right, let's start with them. Sure, I'm Brendan Conway. Uh, I work with Magpie Games. And I uh, wrote and designed Masks A New Generation, uh, which has that whole Halcyon City setting. And I did three Chaos Worlds for Dungeon World, uh, each of which were whole settings designed to do crazy weird things and take it into Dark Souls territory or Planescape territory or just turn it up to 11. So that's me. Nice. I am Daryl Hayhurst. I am one of the designers on the new Torg Eternity. Um, and I'll tell you all about the other designers and how awesome they are at the drop of a hat but I'll try and keep it specific to the world stuff. For those that aren't familiar with Torg, it has got dozens of fully formed game worlds that all crash together at once. So when we're talking world design, our big problem was what to cut out rather than what to add. You know, and it's based on a game from the 90s, so we had an embarrassment of riches to start with. But yeah, that's me. Uh, my name is Todd Van Huser. I'm the author of a fantasy series called Laughing Moon Chronicles. And unlike these guys that have actual credentials in game design, um, several years ago I was more or less bullied into creating an RPG that my readers could game in. So um, as an independent author, I had to go learn the ropes on my own. I created a, an RPG called Adventures Under the Laughing Moon. We ran that for years. and. Um, to some like local success, I would say. And uh, I'm now back at it with a uh, new version of Wheelhouse that I'm, I think I've designed with sort of game designers in mind. I've been on a number of these panels, stolen some ideas, and listened and took the advice. Well done. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, I think the best artists are the best thieves, so I've got sticky fingers. Um, so I'm Brendan LaSalle, AKA the other Brendan. Doesn't happen much, does it? That's not. <laughs> no, not much at all. Go team. <laughs> um, so um, uh, yeah, so I'm a, a role-playing game designer. Um, I am most known for my X-Crawl world and setting, which I have been publishing since 2002. Um, so I've mostly worked on that, but I've also written adventures for, um, and done like bits of world design stuff for um, Goodman Games, for Legendsmith, mostly for Legend, did a lot for them, um, for, um, Handmade games for Fat Dragon and a bunch of other different you know, smaller titles and presses. And uh, thanks for coming to our panel. Cool. I'm gonna turn mine off before that happens to me. Yeah. <laughs> no uh, one likes me, so I don't have to do anything. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, let's just let's start um, and say when when you guys are designing a world, right, for your players. Um, what is it that you do to try to make it so that like? It feels bigger than just like the ten by ten foot room the players seem to find themselves in at the moment. I can take a stab at that. Yeah, that step as an independent here. Um, I, I think when a gamer comes into the room to sit at your table, you want to establish a sense of history. 
that they are a part of something bigger than the game itself, and the day itself, than the collection of people that are there. With me, um, I like to say that my former players have left footprints in the sand, and they, anyone that might join us for a session or for a string of adventures, they're, they're partaking in something big, something fun, and something ultimately epic that I try to have a sense of resonance with. So my players, when they sit down in game, they actually have the opportunity to shape uh, the game in a lasting manner. So their actions have long-standing consequences. So hopefully that player feels like, wow, this matters. This is cool, not just for a game, but for an actual setting. I've seen you at a lot of different conventions in different places, and I do have players that come back and really yeah. and find that, like, you know, oh, that was me. Um, <laughs> they do, and this weekend was actually a great example of that. We had a, a guy that played on Friday night who screwed things up royally, and by royally, I mean awesomely. It was great. Everybody embraced it. It was fun. And he came back for our end game today and got a real cool sense of closure and got to see that his actions Friday night shaped the, the games that we had yesterday and then all to come around today with this kind of really cool final moment. So, yeah, he definitely left his footprints behind. Very cool, very cool. Um, so um, when I'm doing um, world design things, I try to um, use little details that suggest much larger details and movements and things that are going on in the world. And it's a very economic way to give you a world um, for similitude, you know, where it feels like a real, actual place, you know? Um, I'll, I'll definitely, you know, uh, allude to place names that aren't actually there. Even, you know, just in, even in the design stuff, I'll just sort of like touch on other places um, that, that um, or other things or other, you know, groups, you know, tri you know, whatever, um, you know, movements, you know what I'm saying? Like just little, like scattering little things throughout that, throughout your text is gonna make people, we're, we're talking about design here, right? Like the, the, yeah. um, the, the scattering throughout your text is gonna like um, give the, whoever, you know, they're gonna, a GM's gonna read it and then run your world, you know? And if the GM has that sense that it's a much larger place, he'll start thinking along those lines. When he sells it to his players, it'll have um, much, um, uh, Know, much more going on, you know, there as fun and such. I love the idea of like adding things that you're saying, like to you know, to, like, like, like that kind of detail for like former players that um, you know, you could use, use that sort of stuff to like you know, add the, the, that would be an example of a great little detail that you could add things that were left behind by other players that would like sort of suggest the larger, wild, wide world and that things can actually have impact on them. So, um, but look, there's a lot of little ways you can add in a lot of different kinds of details that you can add in, including just. Having you know, like you know, like you know, foreigners who have a certain who have certain cultural things that then they see you know repeated a couple of times. So it's not just a one-off, but they see like a you know a, a certain thing like that and such. And it makes it you know as a when you add those sort of things into your text, um, it makes the world feel much real. And when you do it in a, in a live game, um, it definitely makes it feel much more like a real space. Daryl, how do you how do you work with your when you're working with design because you have so many worlds that you have to deal with, right? Um, and it's hard to let. I mean, I remember back in when I was, you know, 14 years old, I played riffs, right? Which felt the same kind of which I felt like washed out everything with too much, right? And I didn't feel like I was living in a or was playing in a world as much as just like just shit was everywhere, right? Um, so how do you how do you make your players feel like they have like a place or so the take that run. The, the best advice on design I ever got from anyone was from Shane Hensley and I was a little bit shocked when he said oh yeah and I it, this is in the Savage Worlds Explorer book and I'm like what and I go back and read it and like and there it is and I'm like oh man he, he he wrote it right there and I just read it past it a million times but when he when he told me face to face it stuck and he said, when you're designing a setting, a world, or whatever, the, the first thing to focus on is, what do you expect the players to do? You know, you think about your game world, and if it's Dungeons and Dragons, what do you expect the players to do? Fight dragons, go digging through dungeons, right? That's why everyone plays it, because they know what they're supposed to do. And then every other piece of design element can start folding into place around that focus. So when you're talking about building a world from scratch, 
whether it's something traditional or something really weird, you focus on what are these players going to be doing at the table every week? What do I want them to be doing? Okay, now how do I make that clear to them what, they, what, what I'm expecting them to do? Support that with your detail, and then you're kind of, you're showing them the path. Here's what you should be doing. This is what this game is about. Here's how we're going to help you do that with game mechanics or setting items, you know, and so on. And so, and, and then with Torque, it's all about the, the focus, right? There's, if you can do anything, then you can't do, then you can't do anything, right? You, you get analysis paralysis. So it's all about finding a spotlight and saying, you know, you guys are heroes. We want you to fight this war. There's a million other things that you could be doing, but our focus is this war. So despite all this, all this crazy other stuff going on, you, here, here's the zoom, and everything outside of that spotlight is going to get really fuzzy, and we're not going to pay that much attention to it. We're going to say, hey, it exists, and if you want to explore it as a GM, which maybe we can talk about the GM side, great, you know, you could build on that, but here's... Here's what we have to focus on. Here's what we're expecting you to do. Uh, Brendan, Stapleton, Brendan. Um, <laughs> you're, uh, one, thing I, one thing I really appreciate about the Halcyon City is your, your history, mm -hmm. right? The, the age of heroes. Um, and you use history very well in those games. And I feel like when I play Masks, that, like when, when, I, when I bring a villain or something forward, I always like mention what age they come mm -hmm. from. So talk a little bit about history and how that works with Masks and Totally. Or you can go out and wonder if you want to. <laughs> so badgers are really cool. Um, I agree. So there's a really good uh, line from the villain in the Lock and Key comic book series, and he says it to uh, the youngest kid who's the hero, uh, the youngest hero of the series, and, and he says, um, kids always have this weird thing when they come into a story. They always think they're coming in at the beginning, and they're not. They're almost always coming in at the end. Um, and Lock and Key, the series, goes on to make clear that like the situation that is at the very beginning of the story is the result of countless actions that have come before. Uh, it has the effect of like dwarfing the kid a little bit, right? Because you, you come in and you think to yourself, um, I should understand this. I am massive. I am affecting the situation, but you're not. The situation existed before you. It will exist beyond you. Uh, you're here right now, but there's lots you don't understand. And so one of the big things that the history of the House in the City does uh, in Masked, where you play young superheroes, so you're playing younger characters who are trying to come up, uh, and you're not the Titans, you're not Superman, you're not Batman, you're not huge, having that giant history dwarfs you a little bit. It makes clear that at the start of the story, this story existed long before you did. Um, you are smaller as a result at the very beginning, right? You're coming in and this villain has an established motivation that uh, existed from a thing that happened before you were maybe even born. Uh, and they've been doing this for a long while, which as you get into it, it punches you in that like young, smaller, I'm not sure if I can do anything. I'm insecure about myself. I'm not sure I have the strength to actually affect this. Um, and then over time, as you do start affecting it and changing it, as you do start uh, pushing back against that, and you you are the first time that that villain changes their story. Um, that then in turn reflects back as a very strong sense of like power and the ability to affect things because you had that earlier sensation that all oh, this was so much bigger than you were. Uh, so history in Halcyon City in Masks is very much a tool to set up that this world is bigger than you and it's gonna push on you and it's gonna try to squish you. Um, and then you can squish back. Whereas if you did a story without history, if you did like one where we're at the beginning of time, for example, and there wasn't much in the way of history, that effect is completely different. Uh, it says I actually do have the power to completely recreate everything or to completely change what I want. If we make it so that I am from moment one not dwarfed by the history that has come before me, but I'm instead a mover or a shaker of the history. If I'm the leader of the army in the war, as opposed to the soldier in the army of the war, that history has a completely different feel uh, because I'm a maker, I'm a shaper of it more than I am subject to it, victim of it. Uh, and so I think actually adjusting the level and the nature of the history in your setting 
has this tremendous effect on do you want to communicate to the players that they are powerful at this juncture or do you want to communicate that at the moment you should feel like an underdog it very much is a dial purely on that where is your place in the fiction spectrum uh, I'm going to throw a question to kind of like everyone on the panel like since you're all you've all like made different worlds and stuff like that um, are there like little little like favorite parts things that you love in there and how is your experience better how you feel like you were able to make that important to people who read it or failed uh, like you know you, you put too much love into it right like it's also possible but how, how, does, how does that work in your guys today? um okay well uh, for, in the world of x crawl so x crawl takes place in a uh, it's a modern fantasy setting so your 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 ancient fantasy world has grown up and uh, now in this modern media-saturated world, in mind it's the, the North American Empire, um, people are nostalgic for the old days, so they do a death sport on television called X-Crawl, where people go and they go through televised dungeons where they, 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 they try to earn sponsorships and win gold and fighting monsters, but all, you know, in, you know, legitimately fighting and dying, but doing it in front of crowds for arenas and playing to the camera and trying to win prizes and that kind of thing. So um, I was, little favorite things about the world there, I. Tried, I really thought a lot about what it would be like to cohabitate in a world with actual dragons. And the first thing I came up with was that a dragon actually in X-Crawl would be the rarest thing in the world. You'd almost never ever see that. And I thought what it would really change amongst every other thing would be city design. You know, like um, dragons are going to call big parts of the territory their own. And they're like, okay, this is all mine. And if you try to build a you know, 7-Eleven over here, ah, uh, no, you know. So um, I, I, I was very happy with, like, after giving it a lot of thought, like, imagining what the world would be like, where these entities would be like, and what the history there would be like. So, you know, at some point, like, you know, in the um, history of America, because, um, you know, America is basically these giant walled cities with no suburbs, because, because you know, you, you start expanding out and you start getting into the territory of these dragons, and since these dragons are there, they naturally attract things that the dragon doesn't mind, but that don't care for civilization either, humanoids, other monsters and things. So it gets denser and denser the closer that you would um, get uh, into them. And um, the, um, so the, um, like, you know, you, like you literally have like a walled city, inside the walls is like farmland, and then, you know, a tiny little sub suburb, and then the city, like, like the actual downtown. And um, that, uh, I, I imagine how, how it would happen. And there would be a point, if, if their world becomes our world, there's going to be a point where the army goes, you know what, why don't we take our whole country back? We've got rockets, we've got grenades, we're going to go ahead and do this. And uh, they go and start to tell, like, you know, like a blitzkrieg attack against dragons, which gets them organized and gets like Japan involved because they're dragon worshippers and things. And it quickly goes very badly, but leads to a treaty. So in the word, it's like, you stay out of cities, we stay out of your territories. So now I have this America that is like no suburbs, but just all the major cities walled up and protected and, and kept apart from everything else where um, like to trick, you know, if you're if you're just a regular Joe, you you know, you, you rarely leave your city and if you do, you wait by the gate until a bunch of other people are gonna go and all of you go by caravan. You just all drive down the city and drive at once from one time to another and uh, you know, make it from one place to another. So I was very the the that came from a lot of like design, thinking about it, and it led to a lot of neat adventures. You know what I'm saying? Like you can, you know, there are work adventures you can have in the real world of Xbro, where you're just these athletes that fight monsters on TV. But sometimes the bus breaks down, and you're in NCAG territory, and you just gotta, you know, do your best. So. Um, for my part, one of the uh, things I found in terms of like designing super cool, fun pieces in the setting was that actually the parts I really liked were often the least essential to the setting, and the parts that made the entire setting actually a thing were sometimes the least inherently exciting to me, at least, or the least that I was like, oh, that's such a cool idea. Um, it, when I did uh, The Last Days of Anglekite, which is a crazy over-the-top, goes-to-eleven, dungeon world setting, the world is ending, and blah, everything's exploding, there's a 200-foot-tall giant made of corruption, it's just insane. Um, the things that make that setting actually work from a design perspective are, as that setting goes, understated. This is the only civilization in existence. Uh, there isn't anything past here. This world is ending. 
the things that are individual and specific and, um, to me, super exciting, a 200-foot-tall giant made of corruption, a town where people make armor out of, like, spider webs, uh, like, a city of uh, undead or super philosophical, those are not actually inherently specific to what the design is trying to make you do in that setting. Um, if I remove the city of the philosophical undead, like, my heart will break, but also, the setting won't inherently die, but if I remove the idea that this is the only little haven of civilization, that setting no longer achieves its end. So there's that element to it where in that game I specifically say uh, early on, basically the majority of this is a toy box, pick what toys you want to play with, take them out of the box, have fun with it, and I, I resolve myself to the idea that not everybody's going to play with every toy. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the things that then were crucial to it, I don't describe in that way. I don't put in that perspective of, you can play without this. Uh, and so it's important to be able to call out that like, you maybe, this is such a cool thing, and it's super exciting, but if it's just the toy, and I can play without that particular toy out of the box, then it's a toy, and that's fine. And, and we're cool with that. Um, as opposed to, this isn't a toy. This is like the box. This is a piece of it that you cannot play without. And I'm not gonna talk about it in a way where you feel like you have the option to remove this from the setting. I'm gonna make super clear, this is part of the actual design. This is a crucial load-bearing setting piece. You want me or shall I? Go ahead. All right, so the, the most fun part of design for me is the end result of seeing the crazy cool things people do with it. Mm. <laughs> so like you put all this work up front in and then you, you see someone like kind of take off and you're like, oh, that's beautiful. Yes, this was all <laughs> worthwhile. So and an, an example of that, we, so Torque has all these worlds in it. And it is a game that was clearly written in the late 80s, early 90s. And there's a lot of bias baked into that old version that we just knew this won't play in 2017. <laughs> like we gotta change some things. And one of the you know settings that we changed very radically was the, the worlds in Asia, which used to be Nippon Tech and was based very much on a on a, on a financial a fear of Japan financially taking over the world at the time. And it's like, oh man. There's just no way we can do this you know, now. What are we going to do instead? But have it still evoke what that setting was in the old game. And it was also it was a cyberpunk setting, but it was the other cyberpunk. There was also the cyber papacy, which was like cyberpunk plus plus. You know, it's like all right, we don't need two cyberpunk settings. We don't need all the baggage that came with that. So what are we going to do with it? And so what we chose to do with it was to take um, the elements of deception that were baked into the old one and say, okay, no, th this is a fundamental core world law of this invading cosm. And so it doesn't even look like it's being invaded. Like, we don't look like Blade Runner anymore. It looks like today. And the great thing is like, some, some of the tech that we have today might as well be from another world. Like when you really look at it, like, wait, we can do that? Yes, we can do that. <laughs> so their, their tech is like just a little bit higher than ours, but not high enough that you notice that something's happened. And they've got a lot of information control. So like someone would be like, oh man, there's totally a high lord here. We've been invaded. They're like, fake news. <laughs> and just boom, story after story after story starts coming out and it, it just floods the place. And then the other element, and this actually came from someone's personal tour game, where they had basically a zombie infection a la um, Resident Evil come out. And we're like, oh, the, we'll have that, but the point of it isn't really the, the zombie invasion. The point is the pressure that it puts on that allows the corporate entities, which were the same ones behind the original setting, to step forward and say, okay, these governments are collapsing, they can't handle this zombie outbreak, there's no help coming from the rest of the world because everyone else is being invaded by these other things, not us, there's no invasion here. <laughs> We've just got these weird zombies to deal with. That's, that just happened on its own. You don't pay too much attention to that. 
Um, and then they, they use that to propel themselves, you know, like government's collapsing, that's okay, we'll step in and we'll protect you. And that's how we, they, like, and Asia gets unified under this corporate rule. It's like, we can't really afford to have borders here, so we're just gonna open up these borders. And yeah, China and Japan and Korea and North Korea, that's cool, like, we're all gonna work together because it's either that or get eaten by zombies, you know? And, um, and that's the start of the setting. <laughs> and there's a group out there, and I just forgot their name, they're on the internet, um, and they've been creating, they have nothing to do with us. And this is what I love about them. They're, they're just fans that have gone out and they've made these videos, pulling in like footage from movies and things like that to explain to people what Torg is and the setting. And they don't talk about game mechanics at all. They're just like, oh, here's where Storm Knights come from and this is how reality works and all that. And they did one for Pan Pacifica and they're using all these cool cyberpunk movies and Black Rain and all, all this stuff. And it looked fantastic, but as I'm watching it, I'm like, you know, everything they're saying here is right. I'm pretty sure 20 or 30% of what they're saying here isn't in the book. <laughs> that they put it together, they're like, okay, the only way this could work, the only way this could follow through is if this is true. And there's bam, 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 bam. And I'm like, they got it right. Like we put in the thought exercise to make sure these pieces fit. But the fact that they filled in those gaps so smoothly, I'm like, ah. Oh, what a great feeling, yeah, we did it right. You know, this works, you know, people are like, what? I don't, how, how would North Korea and South Korea cooperate? I don't get it, you know? <laughs> okay. Um, I guess my approach is a little bit different because uh, like I said, I wasn't a game designer coming in, I was a fiction writer. So uh, I had an established book and an established world and when I had interested people that wanted to play in it, I had to go back into the fiction and look at what is it that I've established and what are the rules within this world and what playability do I have? Um, which is interesting because as a, a fiction writer, you don't think of, you don't think in terms of mechanics. Someone casts a spell because I said they did. You know, and, and there can be actions and consequences within the fiction, but to create the mechanics that are built around that, it's a very different thing to do um, and challenging. One of my favorite parts of the old game that I created was the magic system. And in the novels there was this, uh, there were two different forms of magic, one of which was sort of a chaos magic that was linked to the gods. And to use it, there was definitely a sacrifice, a consequence in the book, but in game terms, I needed there to be um, something challenging and a little bit scary with the idea of embracing this magic. So I wrote up a system that created a, an opportunity to use this type of magic, but at a percentage consequence of things getting, I never like to say bad, I said interesting. Um, and I created this list of 100 different possibilities if things got interesting, we would roll off the list, never anticipating that my players would love the list. So where, as, as a game designer, I thought, all right, this is the big bad list of stuff we don't want to happen. And the players quickly realize, oh, this is cool. How can I screw up <laughs> and let this consequence happen? So I've, I've run a number of different games at conventions where the big end game, you know, I've got something else established and sort of anticipated, and somebody rolls the dice and it hits the fan, and we're literally playing, you know, the floor is lava at the game table. And it's hilarious and kind of awesome but I never anticipated my players embracing that the way that they did. So in the redesign of what I'm working on now, I'm, I'm trying to create different, a different context for those types of mechanics and rules. I think, I think, I think that's an interesting, interesting point. If you just build a fiction world, it's not, it's not set to be a game. Right? No. Which is, very, which is very, a very different thing. Right. Magic works because it's magic. Right, because it was good for the plot, for the narrative. Exactly. Right? <laughs> like, does Harry Potter use mana? Not really. Like, there's no real system there, and you can't just have everyone walking around saying it ever. You can't. I mean, like, that's just not a really good game. So you have to like work with it. I think that's really, really cool. That being said, though, I I still stand behind the narrative aspect of, mm -hmm. a lot of, of. I mean, I can't speak for any of the other designers here or their games, but 
that narrative quality of an RPG, I think, is king for me, at least. The idea that, all right, we've got this set of rules because you've got that, you know, that, that mechanic junkie at the table that, that needs to know how. Or it works because it makes the story cooler. And I will always fail on that side, I guess, if I have to. It's, it, the story is going to be king. And it, I've seen it work well in that regard. The rules matter. You know, we have to have that established sandbox in which to play. But it's that collective group that's building the castles. And you know, a lot of the times, it's those fluid ideas that make them work. All right, so it's about halfway through, so we're going to switch into like GM mode. So the rules for this mode is you are not allowed to refer to any setting at all. We're going to talk about like techniques that we're going to that you would use in your games, or that you want people to use in your games, right? Techniques to use to like refer to the system to make the system feel a little bit more real to the players, because it's it's you, know, you can have all the source books in the world, but if you're not going to like. Aside from just saying, tell your players to just read all this, right? Yeah. Like they need to like feel that it's a part of what's going on. So let's talk about like techniques that you that you would want players to use in your game, or how you want them to refer to the the things in your in your game without um, without actually referring to setting, right? So this can be applied to like everything from you know from 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 masks to tort to like, all the all the different, you know, games. <clears throat> Let's take a stab at it. I'm not, so you, how, how I would want players to? No, GMs. GMs to, like, you, how do you want GMs to oh. bring your setting to the players without just standing up and shouting at them for, like, an hour about, like, about the actual history? Sure. Right? Don't <laughs> you read this. Yes. Yeah, yeah, just read yeah. everything. All right, interpretive dance. That's <laughs> Um, That's almost like shouting, except much more excruciating. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, so my ideal, you know, think of like my ideal GM for um, for a, a, any given setting that I might work on. Um, I mean, ideally, I want him to, to make it his own. Okay, so I want him to take what I've got there and then add, if he just runs what I do, like really tries to like come up with, all right, I'm going to just do 100% try to like just walk in the, the shoes of this designer that's in front of me. Um, he is, it's gonna it's gonna be flat. It won't have enough, you know, and it, let, let, let's say it won't have its full potential, I don't think. I think that when when you're writing and the GM is reading and getting ready to interpret it, there is something that has to happen between the two, that, that kind of alchemy. And that in that in that alchemy, part of it is him bringing the ideas and the things that you haven't thought of yet, like you, like your players that you're talking about, he has to come up and actually have those other things that you that you left out. And by him filling in those parts of the world, that's going to make it feel just way more real to his players and such. So that's what I would I would be wary of taking it. If you're talking about just from a strictly GM perspective here, I would be wary of taking someone's setting and trying to like really making um, being dead on with the book, making that like um, a goal that you shoot for. I would I'd say it's a, a almost like a false thing you should not shoot for. Instead. Um, you know, all you have to do is make it really fun for your players. You know what I mean? No one has to, you know, you're never, we're not going to get a report card on how well you've run our world or how strictly you've stepped to it and such. We are. It's gorgeous. In universe, there's surveys that go out. How well? <laughs> <laughs> nah, I, um, we're judging you. <laughs> nah, I, I think that, um, and that, you know, that, that's a man, different kind of thing. Yeah, but uh, for, 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 from, from when, I, when I think of, like, the guy that I wanted to I want him to, the first thing I want him to do once he gets used to the world I've created is create a spot in it that he is his spot in that world that has, you know, obviously following the rules of the larger world and that makes sense in the flow of the rest of it, but that is his own where he can kind of have his arena and his kind of thoughts out there. You know, like the first time I, was, I just told the story, the first time I played Fort Booth Rifts back then, you know, when we came, you know, back because it was because I'm old. I'm very, very, yeah. very, very old. And um, uh, but the first thing, the first time I ever played, I was like, ooh, I can't wait to go and start making up my own world and like tack it on over here to the thing. And mine's going to be, you know, I, I don't even remember any of my ideas for back then, but like, you know, but, um, you know, and then it would have still, you know, I would have definitely stuck to the larger continuity and have everything, you know, got to have something. You don't care. Do whatever. But it was, uh, <laughs> to have that part of it that is, that, 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 that's my creation, it, it'll come with a certain kind of a creative confidence that you can 
demonstrate to your players. It'll get them, make the rest of it feel more real. So on the GM side, I tend to eschew history and background. I am, and I, I misuse this term, but I'm gonna use it consistently, misuse it consistently. I call it the tactile elements of the game. And they're the elements that, that cause consequence. It's, it's whether it's a person that you can change their mind or beat up or manipulate or you know, uh, a block that you can push and it's gonna be in a different place the next day. Like, whatever it is, it's something player facing that they know is there, that they know their actions are going to modify and change. It's in their face, it's a tactile element. I'll focus almost 100% on those. And the, the, the background material, like that book that you're, you're not expecting your player to read, that's providing those elements for me as a GM, but I don't need them to know all of them. I only need them to know the elements that are in front of them today. And if they, when they get into it, then they start finding those other elements. You know, and you can start saying, hey, these other, other, here's the other elements out there I'm not going to push this on you, but now that you know they're there, you can go looking for them, and that's when games really get momentum. But if if you try and do like the opening crawl, here's all the things that you're going to need. People are like, ah, oh my god, just stop! I just want to hit an orc. <laughs> Come on! <laughs> but uh, that's that's so that's what I do. Like I use that stuff as support for the tactile elements, and 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 then uh, yeah. I gotta stop there because I was about to go and design for a GM. <laughs> go ahead. Um, well, I think a big GM tool uh, that I like to use uh, myself and that I would recommend is, is the asking the questions mm -hmm. of the players uh, because that allows you to essentially introduce setting elements through your question that immediately demands buy-in from the player uh, merely by answering it. So just as a specific example, it was like, this superhero is, you're clearly incredibly dangerous. So I'm going to ask the player, okay, cool. So why haven't they been apprehended by the superhero law enforcement agency yet? Which allows me to instantly communicate there is a superhero law enforcement agency and get their buy-in on a new setting element that explains why that hasn't happened. So the more I can do that, the more I can subtly introduce like a setting piece as part of the question, allow the player to elaborate their own twist or element on it. Aha, well, I have an aunt who works there and she kept me off the records. Great, that's now true. Um, and slowly but surely get us on the same page with the setting. Um, so it's one of those tools that I think I found allows me to avoid the whole like, here is the book. <laughs> I'll read the book, please. And allows me to instead subtly introduce it but in a way that never quite feels like the info dump because it's immediately this joint thing because it's a question. Um, and the second thing that I sort of think about with the GM side of, of the setting is uh, repeating elements and reinventing elements um, so that I don't have to introduce to you 800 different things. I introduce to you this character, this one tactile element. And then the next time that tactile element, this, this character could apply again, they do. And then the next time they could change, they do. And in so doing, I can seed and fully like craft a setting that's actually not necessarily huge, but that's persistent and consistent enough that we all get on the same page, we all think about it. And then the, the clincher of it is when the players eventually realize that's right. This sounds like a scheme from that guy that we've right. seen six times before. <laughs> oh, that Baron Von Evil. Oh. Exactly. <laughs> that jerk. Um, and, and, but it's that moment that when they can do that themselves, and they're exactly as others have said, like building the setting based on their own intuitive filling in the gaps. Of course this is Baron Von Evil. Um, that's the moment that the setting truly exists between us at the table and has been uh, made a real thing for us in this specific game. I just kind of um, going off of that idea. <clears throat> a lot of convention games, especially, you've got players that are completely unfamiliar with your world. They've never necessarily played this before. They may have not heard of it before. So it's a real opportunity, I think, to invite that creativity. 
the idea that, and it took me as a storyteller a long time to, to get this notion across. I think, one, I was a writer, so I was in control of this, just me. Writing is a very intensely isolated job. I was also a teacher, which meant I was the one with the information and I'm giving this information to you. So there's a sense of empowerment there that you need to dismiss entirely as a GM, I would recommend. The idea really is that you're in a group of creative people and everybody there is very eager to share that creativity and we've all seen those moments. Um, I would advise GMs to be open to that creativity. Okay, so this, this idea might not necessarily be in the book, but it's really cool because this guy said it is and that's cool to him and it's gonna be cool to the rest of the table because of his enthusiasm. I like to invite that player creativity. Um, one of the tricks that I used to do and we do it to an extent today, is that I, I immediately pressure the player to um, create context and relationships because you might not know anyone else at the table, but your characters do. So I would look at this person and say, oh, well, your character, you, you know her because, well, you remember that time at the end when that thing happened and you said, and then suddenly it, the pressure, the spotlight is immediately on him and he's got to come up with a response and he says something stupid that she now has to reply to and immediately you get this conversation going and relationships formed and the ice is broken and I think that's worked really, really well because it forces those players to own that moment and then to inhabit the setting, I guess. Do you guys, um, outside of Mango Kite because that's, that's <laughs> that, that mechanically deals with some of the stuff, but for you three guys, um, do you find do you find that um, sometimes leaving things that open without it having embedded in the mechanics of the game? So, like Mangokai runs out the dungeon world, it's very narrative. It's based off of asking questions. That's pretty much the whole game. There's not much else behind that. Um, but when you have a more codified game. Know, that's, that's a little bit more uh, set into skills and powers and specific mechanics in the game. Do you find yourself that GMs outside of, because you have an idea of your world, but you think other GMs have a hard time uh, codifying that? Like, there's not a skill check for how well you know somebody, or there's not a, a role you make for that sort of stuff. There's not a mechanic there um, versus where an other game, the mechanic is asking the questions. Like, how do you sort of? Deal with that part of it. That's like, tough. Just communicate that as a GM. Like, I can tell you guys from an independent writer's uh, perspective, it sucks because most GMs come in with a love affair with some game already. So let's just say you've got a guy that loves D and D. Okay, that's our go-to. I have a very difficult time selling Laughing Moon to a D and D player because uh, wait, I've got to learn a whole new system. So I, I think it really. You know, it speaks to that point that if a GM feels like there's a stack of rules that I've got to learn in order to run this game, well, I know I'm not going to do it. But if I think the game itself welcomes that idea that, all right, is there really a perception check that's necessary here, or is there a story element that I can run with that allows, uh, I'm not sure if that's really answering the question, but... I think it, it invites that that new player in, that new GM in a lot more easily. Yeah, kind of like how do you how do you bake that into your rules to communicate to the GM? Because that's what we're talking about, right? As GMs, yeah. is how do you communicate to that GM? Like, here's how you deal with sort of these issues that aren't codified in right. mechanics. Right. Well, and so and so, and in, in Torg, we, we kind of had to. There's a lot of places in the in the rules where we have to you know bring the GM's call. Because we don't, because we didn't want to codify that, right? Like this is this isn't a die roll thing, right. or this isn't a well. Let's do a table of the exact times when a flamethrower would do that. Look, come on, you're gonna have to you're gonna have to make a call based on the situation. And we do that in enough places that I think it kind of permeates the rules. And then the other thing about the torque does that's interesting to that, and this is where it was one of the the groundbreakers in the storytelling portion, it's got this thing called the drama deck. And heroes have cards in their hands, and some of those cards specifically, you know, because the idea of a Storm Knight is they can push against reality and they can change things. 
and they've got a card in their hand. I've got a card here that says romance. And I can play this card, and now there is a romance that is getting added to this game. And it says right here, I have to negotiate with the GM on how that's going to work. Because we can't write a rule that says, well, roll percentile dies. I guess she's into you. No, it's like, no. <laughs> it's you, you play that, and all right, how is this going to work? Are we adding a new character? Is this a romance with an existing character? What prompted this? And we tell people straight up, this is a negotiation it has to happen. And, and we've got these interactions they're called. You know, like you can punch someone, but you can also try and trick them or whatever. And based on your level of success, the top end is the player's call. So when somebody wants to do something really weird, it's like, awesome, we're just gonna pick the interaction that's closest to that. And if they get the player's call result, that happens. Yeah, that guy goes flying off the building, or the dinosaur tumbles into the tar pit, or whatever. Great. I mean, that's that's how we baked it in, how we handled it. I think, um, I think the rules, any rule system you do, absolutely informs the narrative. You know, and the way the way your rules are set up, and like what the kind of things that you assign, like set up skill checks to, absolutely, you know, like you know. To affect the kind of stories that you'll tell and the way you'll tell the stories that you want to tell, you know. And to me, uh, I think that I will. I try to like for my, my thing is like I codify the things that I want to codify, and everything else I'm hands off of, and I allow all of that to be, you know, GM's call. I want that to be. I want GMs to feel like they're empowered against the dice, that they don't have to have a system for every last thing. Although, you know, um, it, it, with the exception of things that empower their their players. You know what I'm saying? That's the only time I want to step in and be like a, an advocate for players on, on that on that case. And that's where the dice, you know, that's where the that's the other side of that that thing where the the narrative, the rules that the players have that allow them to make changes and things that absolutely informs the narrative as well. And uh, you know, like you know, even even so much as things like, well, I I cast a spell to get us out of the situation. You know, GM creates a situation. I I do this, and, and we can get outside of it. That's the kind of thing I want to do. But for um. You know, for for I would rather just sort of leave those spaces blank and let GMs. Because I mean, I know how I GM. You know what I mean? I, I I did not have to have a lot of rules for a lot of things. We we figured out the table, or we yeah, it was a negotiation. You know what I'm saying? Like you guys do a tour, or you know, or or and I you know, and you know, I think sure we all do this. Just, I would import something from another game. Yeah. Like, I'm already thinking I would love that deck from our deck. just to you know not even have not even more the storm lords like you know like not make a a, a, a character specific thing. But a player thing, you want to throw an element into the narrative? Heck yeah, why not? Yeah. Um, I, I just try to be, as a GM, I try to be really generous to that. When someone brings up something about their character like that, I just try to react to it. And I, you know, the the as a GM, I want to go by those uh, yes and rules from improv. You know what I'm saying? Where if it doesn't, not like, well, I automatically kill everything with my automatic crossbow. But like, well, I have to get back to the city because. My, my sick parents are waiting for me, you know? I would never say, you don't have sick parents, you didn't you, you say sick parents are I would never be that guy. And I wouldn't want to have a system that forced him to, to well, roll and see if you have sick parents or something like that. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But like, I would much rather, like as, as a GM, I want to leave that open. As a player, I wanted the option of throwing in my own little things to, to, to make the story and my character more real. And as the designer who gives them all that, I want them to have those tools and to me, have a minimum of those. I just want to set up a background, a landscape, with the with the rules that they need to do the things that I have specifically, you know, done up in there, and let them figure out the rest of it. Thank you, guys. Well, thank you for the question. That's a great question. Yeah. Does anyone else have any questions for? I have a question for you guys. Oh. All right. All right. Hands up. Who is interested? Who are interested in world design because you want to publish something? One, and everyone else you're looking to like just improve awesome. And everyone else you're looking to improve your home games and like 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 enhance that. Awesome. Oh, oh equally awesome. Um, I have the one bit of advice that I want to throw out that um, was I'm stealing that someone said it at a world building seminar I was at, and I was like, I am gonna say that every time because that totally makes sense. I, I tripped over trying to say, put this into terms. So I was like, well, you know, if there's a thing out there already, you don't want to, and like the kindly, uh, oh, what was his name? Um, Matt Forbeck <laughs> stepped in and was like, what Brendan is trying to say is, uh, God love him, uh, he, was, he wasn't that uncle, he was totally cool about it. But um, uh, don't follow the market. Don't, don't try to chase the market down. Like, yeah. there was a time when, when, when Game of Thrones first got big a few years ago, when all of a sudden everyone 
who I would meet at conventions who were working on a game would be like, so my game's gonna have a lot of political intrigue, all these different houses and factions, all, you know, and, you know, realize that if you're, if you're doing it for publication, by the time you actually have a physical thing in your hand to sell to somebody, you're two years later from when you first decided to do that, you know? Better to come up with your best idea and do it, and better to, um, yeah. to, to like, to, to add to the market rather than to try to like go beyond, like go behind it. So. And it's okay if you're going to publish to think about that in terms of all right, this is this is the core idea that I love, whether it's popular now or not. Mm-hmm. It's okay to think about that in terms of how do I actually market this? How how do sure. I how do I share this idea in a way that people are going to be able to engage with? That's valuable. But yeah, trying to be like, all right, so what would sell right now and building around yeah, that? Oh, yeah, you're doing, doing, yeah, you're doing before you even start. Yeah, <laughs> go with your best ideas always. Yeah, put them out in front, you know what I'm saying? Don't try to like say, well, I'll take some of this guy's ideas and this guy's ideas. Go with your best stuff and then work down from there. Obviously you work in popular, you know, everything that's going on, you know, you can't, it's all swirling around your brain. You yeah. cannot not do that to some degree. But um, let let your, let, let what, what, what makes your saying unique let that be what you're trying to do. You know what I'm saying? And don't do, if you have an idea that's just like, well, it's like my home campaign. It's really Dungeons and Dragons or this castle. And just, I mean, don't, you know, keep working on that until you have something that's right. like amazing that will like What's, set it apart. Yeah, the differentiator. What's your differentiator? Why isn't this the end? I always say there's two questions that you have to answer when you do anything creative. Is why is it different than something that already exists and why should I care? If you can't answer those, you might want to work on it. Yeah, I just had a I just had a quick question. I was wondering, coming as an author, you know, into the gaming world, um, do you ever find that when you try to like quantify, put rules, or try to make things fair, like, do you f- did you feel at all that that diminished your work when you looked back on it? Like, oh man, this would never would have happened because you did not have enough mana to do that. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, and um, I think that's a fair question, and I think it's a fair response. The books. They're, they're a separate entity, and they're more of, um, they're the inspiration for the game, I, I think. And I think most gamers are, are aware of that idea that, you know, if, if, we, if we watch Star Wars, there's going to be some cheats that happen in the movie that we might not necessarily be able to fully embrace or, or grasp in the game. They're just, they're two separate mediums. Um, it wasn't necessarily a frustration for me, but it was certainly a challenge to create and then quantify the mechanics that would allow for these certain things. Faith and like priestly powers, that was a huge one. That took me, that broke my brain because I, I didn't want it to work like D&D and I wanted it to feel like I'm bringing something new to you know, gamers, the industry itself and then to, to create a faith-based system with the mechanics behind it that would allow for you know, certain powers or blessings or abilities or whatever, that was very difficult. Um, but I, I felt like when I had that book written, I was very, very proud of that. And um, I, I felt like it, I guess it, uh, it acknowledged the novels good enough to, that it felt like a good fit and a heartbreaker that my new system doesn't use it at all. <laughs> it really sucks now that I said that out loud. <laughs> all that work for them. So do you find that that affects your writing then? When you know, So you're thinking about game mechanics and like, how can I make this work and how did this work in the book and how can I sort of do that? So then when you go down and sit and write you know, the next book in the series, are you thinking in terms of game mechanics? So like, how can I make this work in the book? That's, a, that's a great question. Um, uh, unfortunately, yes. Um, what I, I did some novels first, and then I, I did the game stuff, and then I came back and did a couple of comic book things, and especially with, within the, the context of the story I was trying to tell, comic book-wise, I found myself saying, well, this could never happen in the game deal, and what dice would this even be? And then it's like, stop, you know, this is, this is absolutely not fair for you know, the, the authenticity of the story itself. So I, I try to not necessarily cheat the system either way, but find some happy middle ground that allows for both, a little give and take, and just hope that people run with it. And what was interesting was Torg had a lot of fiction, 
both that, like a separate set of novels and a lot of fiction through the books. And one of the things that we tried to do with Eternity, and, and again, it had that same thing where it's like, okay, this has to happen because that makes the story, but it probably wouldn't really work if you tried to do it in the original system. We put a lot of effort into trying to make sure, like, all right, they did it, so clearly it's got to be able to be done. Yeah. We got to make sure we can support this somehow, yeah. uh, even if it is just a well. Just that guy just exploded like ten times on that roll. That's just how it goes. The, the opening chapter of my first book, I didn't realize until a player called me out. It allowed for this extraordinarily powerful moment to occur, which when you're reading it, it's really cool that this happens. And there's a great big, you know, consequence of it. And then I actually had a gamer who had read it, which was cool in itself and kind of rare, but they wanted to do this too. And suddenly it was like, oh my God, how, I, I, can't, I can't let them, That's so you know, broken. how do I not betray my cool exterior here? I have no idea what dice do we use here. Um, I was quick enough on my feet to come up with something, but. When you're level 20, I'm like. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think that's it kind of goes back to Jim's question too. That's a great option to just have a box that says GM's call and let the narrative run. Well, I think, oh, sorry. I was going to ask a little, like, kind of a follow on question about balance. I mean, like, it's like, how do, you, how do you answer questions like, you know, how are there niches for these Robin characters to fall into? You know, why hasn't like some great uh, extra planar entity just invaded all of these lesser ones? You know, how can these how can these like lame so universes still exist? Or how you know why hasn't the dragons just decided that they're gonna buy up everything with their gold hordes and you know force humans into extinction? Sure. Well, um, in, in my case, um, they're just not interested in that kind of thing. They're really interested in outshining one another, showing off how much money they have, uh, mating, and living a very, very, very long time. Rich people so, don't care what poor people think. And they don't, you know, what are they, and every once in a while, it's like humans make it interesting. I'm picturing in this, you know, at some point after there's a, a big conflict and they realize, oh, there's technology now, they, they shot rockets at us. So it's like, what else do they have? Telephones? TV? So now you've got some of these people who are actually like feeding off of human society that do things that they just can't can't do and it's a thing for them to follow and always 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 an opportunity you know um, so in that particular case but um, you know I mean you could you could do that endlessly with any kind of you know fantasy world you know what like, you know yeah. you know why didn't the the giant eagle just drop Frodo off Mount Doom on the first page yeah, the whole thing no, you know, you know um, uh, and in some some cases it's a very legitimate question and you have to, 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 to deal with that um, but uh, I think that the when you're designing it, you have a, a, a greater sense of what can happen and what can't happen, um, you know, in a way throughout the world and such. And part of your job is to let people know why those things couldn't happen, you know. So if um, you know you got the the elevator pitch version of what's going on with dragons in my world, it's more complicated now, obviously. But like, um, hopefully, someone reading you know the original core stuff would walk away with a better idea of that. But to me, though, that sounds like a fun game. Like, that can be a fun, you know, I'm always looking for things to do in the world of X-Crawl outside of that. And I think a faction that was like, you know, dragons are kind of self-policing. They have, you know, some some of these goals and some of these goals. They work to thwart one another. But I would love to do a, a, a larger story of, you know, but two dragons sitting around having an exact conversation. You know what I mean? Like, you don't want to screw, screw Cincinnati, you know, or whatever. Um, that's a fine story to tell, you know? And then it's, it's like, how, how does it go, where does it go from there, you know? And then it's like, well, now we have F-15s. This is in the 1800s when the first war took place. We were, you know, now maybe things work out a little differently, you know? So, um, but yeah, that's a, those are, those lead, those kinds of questions always lead to good stories. Yeah, and then like in Tor, so all the lame dimensions already did get creeped. <laughs> right, that's where that's how, where these high lords come from. Is this is not their first rodeo? They've taken over these smaller worlds. And Earth, what makes Earth special is it's it's kind of almost our Earth, but it's actually like action movie Earth. Mm. Like Die Hard really happened here. <laughs> you know, this one. So they know that they need to bring their A game to even have a chance because they're like, all right, we've got our dragons and our whatever. And then, you know, like Arnold swings down with a machine gun, you know. He's just one man. And he's just, oh, shit. Oh. Exactly. <laughs> and that happens. And they're like, oh, man. Like, what? This was not on the instruction manual. What happened here? So like that's 
one of those elements, and then the other thing is there's, there's all this stuff in the war, all these tactile elements where their borders expand and contract, and we tried to make all of those elements that, ha that are controlled by what's happening in your table, right? Like, why don't you just do this? Well, you can, but here's the consequence of that. Oh crap, okay, we're not doing that. Uh, but if we do this other thing first, maybe that becomes a viable option. That, we're pushing that to the table. You know? And if there's something that we completely missed in all our playtesting and a year of talking about it, then the excuse has to be, well, I just never thought of doing it. That's <laughs> <was> like, yeah. <laughs> we better patch that quick. But. All right, last question. How do you, so when you, when you did angle kite, angle kite is, is, there's lots of different things that are happening in there. And I would think, correct me if I'm wrong, part, a big part of designing for something like that, something very narrow, is to not fill in everything. So how do you pick what are the things that you're gonna put in there that are just enough to be evocative of a particular story, because yours is all about like sort of the end of the world, right? Yep. So how do you not fill in like this event led to this event led to this event? Because that's all heavy story stuff that players come up with. So how do you constrain the things to put in there to like where where's just enough and where do you where do you pull back and where do you push forward? So uh, one piece of that actually is in a twisted way, I did fill in a specific story and I filled in the end of the campaign in a weird way. I said this is what's going to kill the world, this specific series of events. But I put it in there because I knew that that would never actually come to pass. Anytime you played the game, the players, the PCs, the characters, they would ruin that. They would break that to pieces. Uh, and so, perversely, by filling that in, that was exactly the starting point necessary because a GM could pick that up, could say, that's the target, but I know I'm never going to hit it because they're going to knock that arrow the heck away from it as we play through a natural thing. But by having that target in mind from the get-go, that gave them a grounding point to start everything from. Like, cool, if nobody did anything, this is exactly what would happen. Uh, if there was no story, this is the story. Um, and then beyond that, I think a big part of what I kept in mind was the idea of a, the fractal nature of storytelling and setting design, where at any given element, you can always dive deeper. Uh, and so, largely, I kept myself at a sort of higher level of, yeah, the city of crazy and day guys, they've been around for a long time, they're super philosophical. Cool. Um, and then somebody else will come in and they'll be like, well, but wait, what do they use for currency? Yeah, great. <laughs> Have fun. Um, <laughs> like, that fractal level of setting design meant all I had to do was design some of the topmost things. Right. Anglicai is an adventure skill. They're a bunch of greedy jerks. Cool. And exactly how they work, exactly their like organizational structure, or exactly who is in charge of the Anglo Kite Adventure Skill is the next layer down on the fractal. Um, and so for me, it was very much giving them that initial um, this is a target, this is a hard thing, this is a pillar of the setting design that will help guide you. And then I'm only ever going to give you some of the topmost level ideas and you are gonna take it forward whatever you find interesting. And if you don't find it interesting, you may not even introduce it, or you just may never get one layer down on the fractal. Right. Like, you may never say, uh, there are these crazy vampire hunters, and they kill everything in order to kill vampires. They don't care about innocent civilians. You may never get to the fractal point where you're like, but what are their real motivations, and why are they all so damaged people? <laughs> um, and you just go, like, they're villains. They're, they're just dark villains, because in this particular story, uh, I never need to delve lower than that. And so for my part, all I had to do was say, here is who they are, here is a version of one of them that you can use mechanically at the table, so I prepped you if you need that. And then it's all in your hands. Um, so, so a big part of it for me was understanding that you will take it forward, you will carry this football uh, over the, the uh, over into the touchdown. I'm mixing my, yeah. You'll carry the relay baton into the touchstone and score goals and it'll be a home run. Uh, and that is sports ball. <laughs> all right, cool. Thank you all for coming. I know that it's, two, it's a little after 2 o'clock. Oh, so we should get out of here. Thank you for hosting. Yeah, thank thank you. you guys for thank coming. You. Thank you.
This podcast is a proud member of the Legends of Tabletop broadcast network. For more gaming-related content, please visit www.legendsoftabletop.com. Take my pants off is what you're saying. You can take <laughs> totally can do that. <laughs> whole thing with your Stop you. Surprise. The internet will never know. <laughs> this is They'll find out. Tweet this. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this is probably the best and, part of the panel and, right uh, here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it doesn't so, get any better. Yeah. So world building, just don't do it. Okay. Oh, our planetour yeah, was to take all the great ideas that they had 20 years ago and just do it. It's worked out really well for us. Are we supposed to go till two? Is that we're One to two. One to whatever the question is. Well, so what I'm going to do, I'm going to kind of break it into like two parts. We're going to do epic world building for designers, and epic world building for GMs. To separate, like, I mean, you can have a stack of Eberron books, but fail to bring it to the players, right? And, like, that's the second part. So, I'm, uh, I'm cool with whatever they want. We got some small crowds, so we can but I also, I'm actually not on the panel. I'm just. But I also just, like some habits. Uh, like that, I mean, that's that's the thing is, we're on the Okay. All right. Jinx it down. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs>